prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, and he gave gifts to his people. What does he mean he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each one in love does his work. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that it is the bride of Christ, that you are sanctifying her, that you have gifted her with men with particular gifts of leadership and service. And thank you that those men are a gift to the church so that we might attain uh, the maturity that you have for us. Use this passage to encourage your people. And bless us, we pray, as we hear it preached in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about divinity. I have a master of divinity but it doesn't work when you're making divinity. Sarah came into the den during the Christmas holidays and said, would you like to help me make some divinity? I had forgotten what it would take to make divinity. The barometric pressure has to be just right. Uh, the, the moisture in the air has to be just at a certain level. The moon has to be lined up with the stars. And so what you do, you take this sugar and Cairo and you boil it. Now, if you don't boil it enough, the candy won't harden. And if you boil it too much, it will burn and it won't look good. And what you do, once you do that, you have over here, you have egg whites that you have beaten together, you know, whipped up fluffy and like that. I can know what I'm talking about. But anyway, then you take that boiling liquid and you pour it in there while I'm stirring it with a mixer. And you stir it until the 
motor starts groaning until it's about the consistency of concrete. Stir in some pecans, and you try, try to make the mixture go. And Sarah burned one up last year, but not saying you know it's her fault. But then, so when the thing is groaning and before it starts smoking, we turn it off, and now you have to stir it. It says until it loses its shiny texture. It should say three or four hours stirring. So we stirred and stirred, and I'd say, is it still shiny? <laughs> is it still shiny like a kid at Christmas? But anyway, we must have done something wrong because it was kind of sticky. But it was good. It was worth the effort. And Lanny's got an easy recipe, I understand. But it was good. The Bible says that Christian unity is good. It's good for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity together. That's Psalm 133. It's worth the effort. And it takes effort. It takes effort to maintain the unity of the church in the bond of peace. It takes effort to see the church grow up and do every part does its work equally well. And as you maintain unity and attain that maturity, it's good. It's interesting that the Bible says maintain unity. It doesn't say obtain unity. It says maintain unity. And the reason it says maintain unity is because there already is a unity that exists. There is only one God and Father there's only one spirit and one baptism, one God and Father of us all, in all and through all. There is a oneness exists, and when you become a Christian and you're by faith you're in Christ, then you're together with everybody that is in Christ, and we are one, all who truly believe, truly believe the Lord Jesus Christ, are the Holy Catholic Church, a little see. And we're also the local church little c and it's hard to maintain unity on the large scale or on the small scale although that unity you know exists john rw stott in his commentary on ephesians says this is the best way to understand it say you have a family mr and mrs jones and they have three boys tom dick and harry and he said, Mr. and Mrs. Jones will get to being uh, at odds with one another, and they separate. And uh, they're not divorced, but they're not living together, and so, but they, she keeps his last name. And Tom, Dick, and Harry graduate and move off, and they've chosen sides and been hurt by the separation, so they never talk anymore. In essence, they're still one family, aren't they? They're still mom and dad, and they're brothers. But there's no expression of that. There's no maintaining it so that they're speaking to one another, where they, they create a picture of the unity that exists by birth. And that's what this passage is saying. There's a unity that is ours in Christ in this church. But we have to maintain it or it will split up and, and go its separate ways. And so what Paul does in this letter, in Ephesians 1 through 3, he gives us all the theology. 
And then in chapters 4 through 6, he gives us all the, the practical. He gives us the, the truth, the theology, and over here, the how to do it. He gives us the indicatives, the facts of the Christian life, that you're chosen before the foundation of the world. You're called. You're, you're, you're brought near. You're at peace with God. He gives all of those tremendous indicatives. These are facts of the Christian life. And in 4, 5, and 6, he gives all these imperatives. Here's what you do. Here's how you live in a church. Here's how you live in a family. Here's how you do warfare in the world. And so what he calls us to do, in essence, and in summary, he says, to walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called. That's kind of how you can translate. Walk worthy. The NIV says live the life. That captures it, but that's not a good translation. The idea there is to walk, and as you walk, you know, step by step and hour by hour and day by day, that's how you live. And so the NIV took the dynamic equivalent. But it's to walk step by step in this unity. How do you do it? You do it in a worthy manner. And what does that mean? I think it means that we walk humbly, we serve graciously, and we speak lovingly. We walk humbly. Humility wasn't a very impressive virtue in the early church. Because in the Roman world, in the Hellenistic culture, humility was never spoken of in a positive way. It was a servile, you know, a, a lowly estate, a, a slave even. And so nobody would call themselves and pride themselves or aim at humility. That was something that, they would, that we would probably say humiliation. It's a whole different concept. But when Jesus came, he changed everything. He changed lives and he changed the vocabulary. It says that Jesus, although he existed as a form of a God, did not think equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to, to, to death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. He gave up his position and he took on a lower position to serve and to save, to live and to die. And it's interesting in that great big section about Jesus' humiliation and his becoming human and his being a servant and dying, that whole thing is probably a creed or a hymn. And right before that, Paul uses it as an encouragement towards humility. He says, now each one of you have the mind of you that's in Christ Jesus. And think of others as more important than yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's just not thinking about yourself. It's not putting yourself uh, first. It's not thinking only about me. The party's not about me. Life's not about me. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. He says, now listen to how he starts it off. Do not imagine that you have ever met a really humble man. He said, you probably never met a really humble man. He will be what most people call humble nowadays, 
he will be sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about is that he is, probably all you'll think about if you met a truly humble person is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took great interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it's because you felt a little envious of anyone who seemed to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. What C.S. Lewis is saying, a humble person is not going to be telling you how bad he is or how he doesn't have any gifts or abilities or anything. He's going to be asking about you. He's going to be talking about what's going on in your life. He cares about your life. It's easy to carry a conversation when you ask people to talk about themselves. It's humble, but it's a way to get a conversation going. But humility also has a cousin in this list. It's called patience. It says be patient with one another and long-suffering. And that means that Christians are hard to live with. They're, they're hard to deal with. You know, if you're going to be patient with somebody, it means there's some reason why you have to be patient. You know, they, they sing off-key. They talk too loud. They violate your space. They're so opinionated. Their breath smells. Their clothes are old. Their shoes squeak. And so we have this reason that we just, you know, that we just have a hard time dealing with some people. Listen to Brian Habig, and he said, he made these two statements. He said, when a lady comes to me and says, you know, I know I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but, you know, he doesn't listen to me. He doesn't express his feelings. He doesn't talk very much. He's interested in things I'm not interested in. Brian Habeck said, okay, what I just heard you say is, I have a husband. The rest of us understood, isn't it? And he says, people come in and say, you know, I'm in a church, but the pastor's not very good, and the Sunday school class is kind of dominated by somebody, and the person that sits behind me sings too loud, and they can't sing, and the kids in front of me are squirming. And he says, what I hear you say is, I'm in a church. I'm in a church where we have to be patient with one another, long-suffering with one another. On Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, we looked at screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis wrote this from the devil's perspective. And what he is trying to do is he's trying to tell his cohort or his assistant how to get into the life of this new convert. And I think it's in the second chapter. He says, make him think the church is ridiculous. And I'm just going to paraphrase what he says. He says, all he sees is the greasy face of the butcher that he deals with every Monday, or he sees so-and-so with a foolish hat, and he sees so-and-so with a double chin, and he comes to the conclusion, help him come to the conclusion that Christianity and church is just as ridiculous as those people are. But Christianity and church is important because you've never met a mere mortal. 
that everybody is made in the image of God and people that are Christians are redeemed in the, by the blood of the Lamb. They are important. And we are to be humble and patient and long-suffering with them if we're going to have unity and attain maturity. Then we have to serve graciously. And verse 8 says that Jesus or God gave us grace. Uh, that's verse 7. And it says he gave us a gift. And the same Greek word is kind of there. The same root word is there. Uh, the grace that God gives us in this context is the gift God gives us. They're kind of synonymous. And so the image is that God has been gracious to you and to me by giving us a gift, and he's been gracious to the church by giving us gifted people. But we have to serve graciously. The image is all this ascending and descending. It's talking about Jesus' incarnation is when he descended. And when he ascended into the higher places, when he, when he left the disciples, you know, in Acts chapter 1, and he ascended into heaven, but as he ascended, he ascended like a conquering king. And a conquering king in those days would come into the city and they'd be throwing out the loot that they, they'd sharing the loot with the people. So the images of a conquering warrior going into the royal city and he's throwing out gifts, but they're not at random. He gives these gifts as he chooses to his people. And everybody has a gift. That's what it says in verse 7. He gives his grace to everybody. And people say, what's my gift? What's my gift? I don't have a gift. And I'm going, it's the easiest thing in the world to find out your gift. You're going, really? What you have to do is you have to have, find a place to serve. You have to find a place to make others more like Christ. Make the church more united and more mature and more what it ought to be. You find a need that you can meet and you meet it. And that need might be great or small, but you find your place, you stick your hole in the finger in the hole in the dike. And every gift is important. Some of you know Brian Chapel. He taught uh, preaching at Covenant Theological Seminary. Then he became the president, and uh, now he's a stated clerk of the General Assembly. He's the author of several books. And he talked about a person who had a gift uh, that, that really affected his life was his third-grade Sunday school teacher. He said he was a, a male Sunday school teacher, which was unusual in those days. And he said the thing about this guy was that when I got to the fourth grade, he was still interested in me. When I got to junior high, he was still interested in me. When I got to high school, he was still interested in me. When I went to college, he wrote me a couple of letters. And he said, when I became the president of Covenant Seminary, I got a letter from this man, and he said he said he'd been praying for him to find God's spot for him all of these years. And Brian Chapel says, I can say with pure honesty that I am probably where I am because of the prayers of men and women like that that didn't despise a small place, but served where there was a need. D.L. Moody said, if I had to live my life all over again, I would invest it in the raising of godly children. Why would Moody say that? Because Moody was in a Sunday school class taught by Kimball. Kimball came down to the store where Moody was working and shared the gospel with him. 
Moody became a believer as a teenager. He became an evangelist, and his work impacted Billy Graham. But it all started with a Sunday school teacher. Billy Graham was invited to go to a university to speak, and this was early in his career, and he gave a lecture on church history, and the person who went with him says, God has called you to be evangelist. Don't despise that gift ever again. What was he telling me? He was an evangelist, but he tried to be a church historian. He was gifted to be an evangelist. You want to serve? Lynn uh, Buford went visiting with me the other day, and I said the same thing, and I told him I said the same thing when Lawrence and I left the nursing home or assisted living the last time. I said, I I, I don't think people understand how much joy it is in visiting people. I don't think I've ever walked to my car, and I wasn't, there wasn't a sense of, of divine satisfaction about doing something that you thought was had value. Got a text the next day. It was interesting how things work. And I got a text that asked, did I know of anybody that could take her mom to the beauty shop? That's silly, but it's pretty important to go to the beauty shop. Your gifts, God's given you one. As you use them, the church is blessed, the church is united, the church is is maturing as you use the gifts. And if you don't use them, we're at a detriment. Then we are to speak lovingly. Walk humbly, serve graciously, and speak lovingly. Speak the truth in love. Probably one of my favorite verses, one that I try to live by, one that I have trouble living by because... A lot of times I speak lovingly, but not the truth, meaning I hate to say the hard things to people. And some of you do just the opposite. You love telling the truth. You just don't have much love behind it. I told one of our officers years ago, I said, you're like a dentist without anesthesia, man. I said, you're, you're, you're pretty painful when you tell people. And he said, well, you don't tell people very much. And I'm going, okay, we need each other. You know, but the truth told in love it doesn't mean that you have the right to straighten everybody out but the context means that we're going to live in a world where our kids and our vulnerable people and our and our congregation is going to be exposed to all kinds of things did you hear what it said we were we're infants tossed to and fro by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming In other words, there are all kind of stuff out there. But you come to the church and you have to have somebody to say, okay, that stuff's not true. That baby is alive in the womb. No, your teachers can't control your sexual preferences. No, there are not many ways to God. Yes, God can forgive all your sins. No, you're not a worthless, useless person. No, you're not beyond saving. You're speaking the truth into the lies of the culture out there. And when you do that, you build up the church and you make it mature. And that's why we're so excited tonight. 
that's a big calling, but we believe that God gives gifts so that we can maintain unity and attain maturity. Let me read one quote from Stott. He says this, The more we share Paul's perspective, the deeper will be our discontent with the ecclesiastical status quo. Some of us are too conservative, too complacent, too ready to acquiesce in the present situation and to resist any change. Others are too radical, wanting to dispense with the institution altogether. Instead, we need to grasp more clearly the kind of society God wants the church to be. And then we shall not be content either with the things that are or with partial solutions, but rather we will pray and work for the church's total renewal, its unity, and its maturity. May God help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the church. Thank you for the men and the women that you have gifted in this church. May we serve you graciously, faithfully, that we might be united and mature people. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.